said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Hey, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. We'll get to the interview with uh, Peter Sagal, fascinating guy, uh, very cool dude, host of uh, NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We'll get to that in just a minute, but first I wanted to remind you that uh, you can support the podcast by going to the feralaudio.com page, click through to Tangentially Speaking, and you'll see an Amazon affiliate link there. If you click on that link and they go in and order some stuff from Amazon, we get about, I think it's about a 5% cut of whatever you order. Doesn't cost you anything more, but it's a, it's a pretty easy way to support the podcast if you're going to be spending some money at Amazon anyway. You know, we just get a little piece of their cut. So that's a quick and easy, nice way to support the podcast. You can also uh, hit the donate page and just drop some cash on us if you like. Last week, a guy from Minnesota sent us 200 bucks. I don't expect everybody to do that, but uh, very cool. Very cool. I wrote to the guy to thank him and he said, hey, you know, I support the stuff I like. So, all right. Good for you. Um, good for me. <laughs> good for everybody. Uh, the other thing I wanted to remind you is that when you're at feralaudio.com, check out some of the other podcasts, particularly uh, Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is something I never miss. Duncan is not just a funny guy. He's a smart guy. He's an open-hearted guy. He's, uh, he's somebody I'm really proud to, to know. And um, yeah. Listen, listen to some of his some of the episodes. I mean, I've I've been on his show twice, had a great time, ended up telling stories I've never told anywhere else publicly because that's just the kind of guy Duncan is. He's unprotected and he makes you want to be unprotected too, which is uh, which is a beautiful thing. Um, the other thing I'm I always forget to mention during the podcast is uh, if you get the podcast from iTunes, you can help us out by leaving a comment, uh, you know, leaving a rating because the that kind of activity helps the algorithm, which does something out in space. I don't know what the hell happens, but somehow having a happy algorithm is a good thing. That's what I'm told by the technical people. So I'm just passing that along. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get into the podcast. Thanks. All right, welcome to a very special edition of Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Christopher Ryan. Although I'm not a doctor in any real sense, if you've got an unexplained pain, don't call me. I only came here to have you look at this rash, man. I'm leaving. <laughs> That burning sensation is not my problem, yes. I'm telling you. Uh, that uh, I, I, I always forget to mention, so this time I won't, that the theme song is by Carsey Blanton. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. You can pick that up. It's called Smoke Alarm. Beautiful song. Uh, in fact, you might know her father, or at least know of him. Um, 
But before I get into that, let me yeah. say who my guest is. I'm being an in, uh, impolite host. My guest, my very special guest, is the hippest, coolest dude on NPR. <laughs> Small bar to cross. <laughs> low bar. Low, low bar to cross. Low bar. Uh, yeah. Uh, Peter Sagal, famous for his hosting of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for how long? 10 years? Uh, 15, 15, my friend. Oh, 15. you just passed 15. I, I knew there was a mile. So I started when I was eight. You started... <laughs> And, and went bald when you were yes, 17. it's yeah. terrible. <laughs> An early affliction of both public radio and male pattern baldness. <laughs> That's great. That's, you know, it's fair enough. Yeah. You know, fair enough. They I'm sure, together. you know, I would trade all my hair for a gig on NPR. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> Terry Gross, watch your back. Um, anyway, the uh, Peter Sagal's here in L.A. He's going to tell us why. I still don't know why. I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, and uh, he's agreed very, very gracefully or graciously, I think is the word I should have used, to be on Tangentially Speaking. So we're going to speak tangentially for a while. Uh, Peter, welcome. A pleasure to be here in your yeah. garage. In in the garage. Yeah, yeah. this is the garage Sex at Dawn built. This was really. Uh, yeah, this was... Uh, was, it, was, it, was it royalties in the book that paid for this building? Yeah. Well, not the building. And the building was here, but the um, it was just a storage, you oh. know, horrible place. So That, that of, explains the decor of phalluses everywhere. Yeah. It's a little intimidating. Yeah, yeah. I'd yeah, say that you... George O'Keefe prints yeah, in here to balance it out. Facing maybe. each other, maybe. <laughs> An equal number, as per the thesis of your book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, Peter, I know Peter because uh, shortly after our book came out, I saw, much to my amazement, that someone on NPR had named it one of their top books of the year, and uh, Peter wrote a beautiful, very generous review, and then... Uh, well, we got together. I guess we corresponded by email, mm -hmm. and then I saw you in Chicago. Yeah, when I was there. We did an event together in Chicago at the University a, of Chicago. In a church. In a ch well, technically in a chapel, although it's still hilarious. Yeah, and, and we, to, got, we got rushed out because the choir had to practice. You never know. Yeah. So it went from sex to music. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah in God's house. It was fun because it was you and me, and we had both, uh, we had both uh, public radio people and sex people. And they're not the same people, <laughs> I should point out. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I wonder if any... I always wonder if people get laid after events that I do. And I, I, I would say the chances of that happening are much higher after your events than my <laughs> events. <laughs> so maybe someone from the sex-positive crowd it's and someone possible. from the NPR crowd there's some cross-breeding. Somebody actually out. referred, I, I said, uh, I, I referred to public radio nerds, and somebody said they were a sex nerd. Yeah. Which strikes me as an oxymoron, I guess, only because, well, growing up, I was a sexless nerd, and therefore, yeah, to me, you know, exactly. it's just, but people, you know, that's their enthusiasm. That's yeah, fine. yeah. Although now we've got, you know, people like Tim Tebow, the star quarterback who claims to be a virgin. So yes. maybe it goes both ways. The well, quarterbacks yeah, so he's aren't like, getting are, laid. The quarterbacks the aren't when the nerds are. are. It does seem as if, in general, nerds are getting laid more now. And I yeah. can only say, good for you guys, and, and uh, if only. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Up, it's a question of timing. Yeah, my timing was poor. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I always felt that, you know, I was just old enough. I, I'm older than you. I was born in 62. Yeah, a little so, bit older. Yeah. So I was just old enough to recognize the party that I was missing in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. I could see and vaguely sense that, like, wow, people are having a lot of fun. Yeah, that was pretty much my, my yeah. thing. Yeah. But there was always another game of Dungeons & Dragons to get me occupied. <laughs> yeah. I never really got into the Dungeons & Dragons thing. I that read The Hobbit, a lot. you know. This is all, by the way, connected. This, you know, yeah. The fact that you were not into Dungeons & Dragons 
and I was is directly related to the fact that people are getting laid at your events and not at mine. I mean, yeah, all, I, I do think there's a line through time. You know? Well, I, I, you know, and I do think uh, I was thinking for this book I'm working on now, Civilized to Death. I, I'm considering this might be a bad idea, but I'm considering like having a, a little section at the beginning where I just lay all my cards on the table you know, and just say, okay, the cat thing. Yeah, the cat thing, everything like here's my agenda. You know, this is this is where I'm coming from, right? Yeah. I'm I was frustrated because I I was a little too young to get in on the drugs and sex party that I yeah. saw going around. So of course I'm compensating for that, right? I got uh, you know I grew up in the time I sort of came of consciousness in the time when that um, American Indian with the tear running down his face was Iron Eyes Cody, my friend. Iron Eyes, Iron, yeah, That's his name, right? And he can cry on cue, yeah. which is pretty cool. Not for actually an American right Indian. Oh, really? Yeah, a little was bit of trivia that actually came up. I don't remember what he was, but it, it, it came up <laughs> It came up in a Sopranos episode, the single worst, the only really bad Sopranos episode, huh. hinged around the fact that Iron Eyes Cody was not actually a Native American. But this is really getting, I it's guess it's tangential. tangential. See, that's why yeah. I decided to go with it. I think know? that Just makes go sense. go with it. Why apologize right. for the way your brain works? I mean, I had some other ideas for the for the podcast, like kitchen table confessions, right? Because it generally I was yeah. recording in kitchens, but you know, here we'd be with garage confession, right? But no, go with the tangents. I think so. Go with it because you know people can listen to you in a focused, comprehensive interview anywhere. True, right? But where else? And this is actually how my mind works. Oh, good. It's pretty so, much going from Dungeons and Dragons to Iron Eyes Cody. It did seem that, and you did more to compensate for this than anybody I know of our generation. But it did seem as if we showed up late for everything. Like uh, I moved to New York. I mean, I moved to LA right after college, and everybody in LA was like, "Wow, you should have been here during the '80s. It was pretty crazy." Right and now, everybody's getting married and settling down, or they died from being crazy during <laughs> yeah. the '80s. And it does seem like wherever I, I mean, I don't know if this is true of people who are say ten years older than us, but wherever I've been, pretty much my whole life, people have said, "Wow, it used to be really great around here." Yeah. No, I I experienced that in in New York. I yeah. was in New York in the mid eighties, yeah. and it was not a great place to be living at that point. Uh, lots of crime and nastiness yeah. and all that. But I'll tell you, I did catch the wave in Barcelona. Yes, you were there for the rise of Barcelona. I got there when I first moved to Barcelona in eighty nine. It was like a third tier provincial kind of city. I mean, literally, people stopped on the street and pointed at me, like, "Look, a foreigner. Look at that guy." Right. You know. Um, could have something to do with the bizarre motorcycle jacket, sure. Irish cap getup I was wearing, but I, who knows? Um, but uh, there were no Asians, there were no black people. You know, it was yeah. I was exotic. And then the Olympics, you know, '92, and then the introduction of the Euro, and Barcelona became this uh, big travel destination. Sure. And quality of life just kept getting better and yeah. better and better. So I really did ride the the wave there. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. I and mean, sometimes I, I talk to people, you know, ten years older than me and I say, Oh man, it must have been great in the sixties and I'm sort of hoping they'll say you know, no, man, you know, the war, there was... You no, know, it was awesome. They, <laughs> they say, I hate that. They say you know, it was I, fucking great. I, I will say that I, I do live in Chicago, and Chicago is a place that I, I seem to have hit at its peak. It's a great uh, city and getting yeah. better, and if I had been there 10 years ago, I would have. it would have been bitter and worse. And hmm. it was cool. From bitter to better. From bitter to better, as yeah. always. Yeah. So I'm supposed to tell you why I'm in L.A. Why are you in L.A.? I'm in L.A. I was here for the uh, Television Critics Association meeting. Uh-huh. Because I did a television show. Uh-huh. A documentary series for PBS on the U.S. Constitution. Now, was that when you were flitting around All the country the on a motorcycle? That's why I was flitting around the country on a motorcycle. The theme of the thing is me riding around the country in this 2012 Harley-Davidson Road King. 
mm. custom painted oh. in patriotic colors. Oh, with We the People, patriotic the, red, white, and blue, just like bet. Easy Rider. Exactly. Yeah. Without the what was it acid or was it marijuana? Acid. It was acid that they in the tripped. Gas tank. Yeah. Well, what they put in the gas tank. Oh, oh, that they were smuggling. Yeah, I don't remember the drug. I, I don't know what it was. None of that. We didn't yeah. have that. It was very late. It's PBS. We can't do that. Yeah. Uh, and basically, I'm going around the country and talking to a lot of people about the U.S. Constitution, not just getting their opinions, although we do that from time to time, but talking to people who are actually involved in uh, in uh, constitutional issues now or right. in the past or hopefully in the in the future, depending on, on their ambitions. Uh, for example, to take a relevant one to California, uh, as you probably know, well, maybe you weren't here for that, but in uh, 2008, California passed Prop 8. Yeah, making, with uh, all the money from the Mormons. Exactly. Yeah, which the reversed... Thing. The prior Supreme Court decision, California Supreme Court decision, making gay marriage legal, Prop 8 changed the Constitution, made it illegal once more. Right. Uh, the federal, the, the state was sued by two couples, uh, one from Southern California, one from Northern California. Uh, that case became known as uh, Perry v. Schwarzenegger at first, then Perry v. Brown. And Perry is for Chris Perry, the lead plaintiff who wants to marry her partner, Sandy. So we went and interviewed Chris Perry and her partner Sandy, with whom I'm very now good friends. They're lovely people. There's, uh-huh. a, there's a male couple. I don't know their names from Southern California. Uh-huh. And that case is now going to the Supreme Court. Uh, it's now been renamed again. It's called Hollingworth v. Perry uh-huh. because the state wouldn't defend the law. And so somebody else stepped in. I don't know who Mr. Hollingworth is, but I can imagine his views in the subject. Probably a Mormon. I don't know, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, at any rate, uh, so we're talking to people like that. Uh, and, about issues of constitutional rights, yeah. uh, values. It's been great fun. Perhaps um, the most interesting or at least moving conversation I had was uh, I went to L- Little Rock Central High and met Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, uh-huh. along with Maddie Salmon, Marty Salmon. Now explain who the Little oh. Rock... While you're explaining it, I'm going to close the door because it's getting cold. I understand. It's, suddenly, it's like 39 degrees in Southern California. This is wrong. <laughs> it's very yeah. Global warming. Yeah. So, go ahead, so anyway, I should explain with Little, Little Rock Nine, uh, a very famous case in U.S. civil rights law and history. What happened was, is after Brown v. Board, uh, that is the Supreme Court decision declaring that segregation of public schools, among many other things, was unconstitutional, uh, the time came to um, integrate the uh, Little Rock Central High School, which is Little Rock Central High School. It's a fantastically beautiful building, by the way. Hmm. Um, and quite famously... Uh, nine kids volunteered from the black schools in Little Rock to attend the Little Rock Central because it's a much better school. And when they showed up to go to school, the first day, I believe it was 1957, I could be wrong, September 1957, uh, they were met by howling mobs of racists right. who prevented them from getting in the school. Um, the government sent, the state government sent the National Guard to keep them out of the school to avoid unrest. Uh, and it became a huge national crisis, and President Eisenhower sent in the 101st Airborne to enforce the law. And for two or three months, these kids were uh, escorted into school every day right. by U.S. soldiers. It wasn't and Marty one, Salmon was one of the soldiers, which was kind of fun. One of the soldiers. It was fun to have them back there together. Wow. Yeah. And wasn't one of the girls, I uh, can't remember her name right now, she's a correspondent on the McNeil Lehrer News Hour. She grew up to be... It's possible. I don't. I haven't followed the case enough to know what happened to all yeah. nine of them. I know that uh, I know what happened to Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, which is that they managed to expel her after two or three months on a trumped-up charge of fighting. 
Really? Yeah. She told me the whole story. What happened was, is they really wanted to get rid of these kids. And and this was not, you know, some cabal of racists. This was the town of Little Rock wanted them right. gone, including the students wanted them gone. You know, today, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, but today is the 50th anniversary of George Wallace's yes. big speech. In fact, uh, segregation now, segregation forever, yeah. uh, 50 years ago. And it's yeah. astonishing. Another place we went was the... Uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Birmingham, and uh, I'm sorry, not Birmingham, uh, Selma, Alabama, on the March right. of Birmingham. Oh, and that's that was, where they put the dogs on. Yeah, that's. Them. I mean, and it's really something. You can walk over the. I mean, it's still there, and you can walk over the bridge and just imagine what it was like to come over the rise and see the soldiers with their dogs. And uh, at any rate, um, what happened to Minnie Jean Brown Tricky was that I mean, they attended this school. It was still very, very difficult, even with armed guards. I remember one of the things she told me was that they learned to walk near the walls because they knew they'd be knocked into the walls. And the closer you were to the wall, oh, the man. less it hurt. So, And these but, are kids. These, these are 14, 15 it, it was It was really astounding to realize that the people who were there, there's a very famous photograph of another one of the Little Rock Nine. I don't remember her name, but uh, she's dressed very primly in the way that, the way we would think of as like a housewife and, yeah. the, you know, string of pearls and sweater. And, and there's a white girl behind her screaming at her became one of the most famous photos yeah, of that era I yeah. and yeah. and like I said the, the little girl screaming is 14 15 years old yeah. these are not they had learned well I believe right. to, to quote well, some and, song and the courage of these yes. black kids yes you know I mean it's one thing to face that sort of I mean high school's hard enough for anybody yeah. right I yeah. mean but to face that sort of animosity for a principal that you know, at 15, do you really understand what you're standing up for? I mean, she, I guess they she did. She says, you know, I remember she told me that it wasn't really for them a principle. They weren't, they didn't sign up because they wanted to be civil rights heroes or they believed in desegregation and they were willing to be martyrs to the cause. They wanted a better education. They knew that that school was better wow. and they wanted to go to that school. And then once it huh. began, she says that for all of them, it was like, we are not going to be intimidated. We are going to put up with this. There was just a sense of pride in what they were trying to do. What happened to her was she, about two or three months, I think it was December of that year, she was walking through the cafeteria carrying a bowl of chili and she was tripped and the chili splashed, the hot chili splashed in two other students and she was expelled for attacking those two other students with the chili. And she's still bitter about it. She, she says those two kids knew what happened and they didn't say anything or they lied about it and got right. her thrown out of the school because they wanted her thrown out of the school. Right. Uh, and here's the thing about Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. She is angry, or rather, I should say, still angry, mm. and does not look at the country the way that uh, less, shall we say, scarred people do. She does not see us, our country, as having lived up to its promise, even as of yet. Even though she's lived to see, among many other things, uh, an African-American president. And uh, to me, this is the best story. I mean, it was symbolic, but you know, symbols have power. At the 50th anniversary, so this must have been 2007, she, is that, that's not right, uh, it must have been the 40th anniversary, 1997, she came back to the school and they were escorted or welcomed into the front door of the school by, on the one side holding one door, the governor of Arkansas, and the other side, President Bill Clinton. So the president of the country and the governor welcomed into the school. And still, with all of that, with the fact that there were benches in front of the school with their names carved onto them to commemorate their courage, she's still really angry. Yeah. What'd she think of Django Unchained? I don't know. I'll give her a call. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Minnie Jean, it's me. Remember me? Yeah, the bald guy. Yeah. I was wondering. Just, just wondering. Just a follow-up follow you know? question for you. Yeah. Well, I can understand that. I mean, certainly I can understand being angry. Yeah. I, yeah. There's a lot of people who are angry. 
yeah. out there. There's a, a lot, lot of, of reason for anger. The there problem is, is some, a lot of them have those fucking assault rifles. That's a problem. That's a I talked problem. to one of those gun guys. I, the, yeah. the nicest, crazy, the sanest gun nut you'd ever want to meet. <laughs> this is a guy named Gary Marbutt. Uh, and I've said this, and I'll say it here, that um, Gary Marbutt has, is always armed. Gary Marbutt believes that guns are the solution to everything. Yeah. Uh, Gary Marbutt literally has more guns than he can count in his home that he built himself on this family land. It's a geodesic dome. And I would feel safer with Gary Marbutt running into him on a dark street in the middle of the night than I would, you know, with my car and my soon-to-be-driving teenager driving it. You know, he is yeah. a very responsible gun guy and no threat to anyone. His ideas are a little nuts. Um, and he believes that the federal government is too intrusive in terms of our gun rights. Even though he, like I said, I even said to him, I said, you have all these guns, you shoot them all day, you teach gun safety, you're, you're a happy gun guy. Yeah. What's the problem? What limitations? Where's the intrusion? Yeah, there? and he's like, I, he's like, he said, there's nothing wrong with the country. I'm just trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. um, we talked, and he's a little angry at what he believes to be federal overreach. Perhaps the most interesting day we spent was, speaking of anger, was one night we drove up to Wisconsin. This was during the presidential campaign. And we hooked up with, I use that term in the Met sense, with the Tea Party <laughs> Express. The Tea Party Express was one of these Tea Party groups that gets a lot of yeah. press. Yeah. What they really are is uh, an interesting question. It seems that what they are is a group that was set up by a Republican lobbying firm based here in California. Yeah. In fact, two the of these Koch guys. brothers, no? Not them. Uh, guys who were a long time affiliated with national California Republican politics yeah. who had a political consulting firm and they decided to take this money and set up a grassroots Tea Party group. Mm. And they hired as their spokeswoman. They had to get rid of the first one because he had posted something horribly racist on his personal blog or Facebook. But this woman, they hired to be their plain-spoken American common woman, you know, face of the movement, was the single dumbest person I spoke to through the incredible process, the entire process. She was an idiot. She did not know what she was talking about. Hmm. And so I was talking to her about what she wanted the government to do as a proud Tea Party spokeswoman. And she said, uh, well, you know, we have to cut ex cut expenditures, get rid of Obamacare. And I said, okay, get rid of Obamacare. She says, yes, we've got to cut the spending. Well, cut the spending. What what spending cuts would you like to make? Yeah. Well, you know, we just got to cut that spending. Right. Well, um, I said, how about entitlements? Because a lot of there's a lot of talk about uh, cutting entitlements. And she looked at me blankly. I said, you know, like Social Security, you know. She said, I don't want to cut Social Security. My parents depend on Social Security. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. Defense, I'll bet she loves defense Oh, cuts. she doesn't yeah. know enough to know. Yeah. You know? And the reason I bring her up was that we attended their rally. It was a quasi-election rally for Ryan Romney, and they had big Ryan Romney signs. Romney-Ryan signs, I should say. And everybody there was so angry. A lot of old white guys. I mean, they really followed every cliche you can imagine in the movement. They were furious. They were angry at what they thought the country would become. They were furious at Obama. They were furious at the at the welfare people who were getting their money. They were yeah. furious, angry people. And at the end of their rally, they played Lee Greenwood's I'm Proud to be an American, or God Bless the USA, I'm Proud to be an American. Oh. And I guess I know I'm free, that one. Oh. And it was just so saccharine and awful and hateful. And we all had to sort of shake it off as we drove back to Chicago. The next day, we attended a uh, naturalization ceremony. There were 200 people there from 40 countries. They, they count them off. They like to do that. And these people had taken their tests yeah. and they were going through the ceremony. And um, they had this presentation about the country. They had a message from, from President Obama. We interviewed all these guys about why they were there, why, where they had come from, and what they had gone through to get there. And man, they love this country. 
with just this almost erotic joy. And at the end of the ceremony, they played Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. And it was great. It was awesome. We were like watching it and we were all singing along. And it was so terrific because there was just the opposite of this anger and alienation and rage. There was just joy and belonging and connection. It was really fun. So do you think that that's related to the fact that for the first time, probably in American history, people don't expect their kids to live better than they have? It's a hard question to know. I mean, th there's always been an alienated uh, reactionary group in America. You can go yeah. back 50 years. I mean, sure. you know, who were the people who were standing outside Little Rock High School and screaming at the, I won't say the word. Right. Um, well, who were the Mormons? Who were the Shakers? Who, yeah, know, I mean, there's, there's always been There's always been of... this sense of, of this is ours and you can't have it. Yeah. And, and, and what's, what seems to be different is that for one of the rare times in American history, another time was the rise of the Know Nothing Party in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, those people have become a powerful political force in which an anger and an alienation out of the rest of the country is right. is driving them. And that's... And that's scary. what I said earlier. I mean, they're funded, if not yeah. in this particular case, by the Koch brothers and other, uh, you know, economic interests yeah. that, with which they share nothing. And that, that's the... Well, that's, I mean, that's always been true. I mean, there's they're a book, voting against their own interests. Well, there's a book called Thomas... There's a book by Thomas Frank called... Well, what's wrong? Well, what's the Matter with Kansas? Which, yeah, is, exactly, which he's trying yeah. to examine that whole thing. And, and I think that that's a little, that's a little over blown in the sense that he's considering the idea that these people are being snookered or fooled into vote against their own interests. And I don't think it's necessarily true. I don't think there's enough respect for the people who are making, they just have different values. They're like, I would rather vote to support these other values than to support what would you tell me would support my economic interests. And I yeah, think you but, have to respect that. Right. But don't you think that the whole fact that those other values yeah. are being brought into the political dialogue, that all goes back to, you know, Reagan and what was his, his, uh, Lee Atwater. Yeah. You know, and that who, you know, was the proto Karl Rove. I mean, well, there's the Lee Atwater, and then there's the whole Southern strategy, which right. goes back further. And there's right. always been a marriage of, I guess, what we'll call to be, uh, to be polite. Uh, conservative social values yeah. to uh, conservative economic values that has always been a weird uh, marriage because these people are not in any way alike. I mean, the, you know, Charles Koch, right? David, I don't know. I think it's David Koch lives in New York City, you yeah. know, like a penthouse apartment, yeah. and he funds the arts, the opera. He he's, funds the, the opera. The, he's got nothing in common yeah. with the people who he's trying to sway their vote, and that is. Uh, a fascinating thing that's that's really far more in the area of expertise of a sociologist than than little old humorous me, but I, I can't explain. <laughs> well, but, it. but you had that you know feet on the ground, right? Where else did you go on that? How long we were, went, you? we were out? We shot for about ten to twelve weeks. It's unclear because I was constantly I was trying to go shoot it and when I wasn't doing a radio home, show, yeah. and it was it was so we yeah. like I'd do three days here, and then I go away for a week, and then I come back, and then we do two days here, and then I'd go on one trip for wait, wait, don't tell me, and then quick take another two days. So were they flying your motorcycle around? No, they, they were trailering the motorcycle. Trailering, around. so you would like fly. I fly in the motorcycle, show up in the trailer. Cruising. Yeah, like for example, you know, <laughs> and we, were you in like a posse? Were you have Hell's Angels with you? Yeah, as a matter of fact, one of the most fun days was we. We were in Phoenix, Arizona. In the morning, we interviewed uh, 
uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who lives out in Phoenix, where she's retired. We interviewed her at her old home, which has been moved to some uh, to the grounds of a museum in Phoenix, and it's like the Sandra Day O'Connor Center for Justice Studies. Wow! And I interviewed uh, the justice, who was not very forthcoming. She doesn't she doesn't like to talk to the media. She doesn't see like she gains anything from it. So, so she she's not going to come on my podcast. No, probably not. Oh, um, bummer! Scratch. Uh, and then we got on we got on the bike and we got on you know I think we put the you bike and in the trailer. Me and Sandra. Well, that would have been funny for a ride. <laughs> I think I offered, but she wasn't interested. And we drove like fifty miles north and we met up with the Arizona Leathernecks Motorcycle Club. Oh, who nice. are totally living that dream. You know, really? this is... This these are serious or these, these are weekend warriors? These are serious warriors? guys. These are guys with tats up to their neck. Right. These are guys who are all Marines. That's the requirement. Uh, in a motorcycle okay. club, you got to be a Marine. Right. And the oldest guy whose name was Kong served in the early 90s. The rest of them are all combat veterans of the last decade. And these guys are serious. These guys, first among... Um, uh, this isn't on film, but they were all packing, we found out. They travel armed. Uh, and they get into, they had a lot of complaints about harassment from the police. Uh, mm. I don't know if they're engaged in any sort of illegal activities, but they certainly like to project to the world that they are. Yeah. So the, and so we went riding with them out in the desert. It was great. You know, you know what's a feeling of security and fun? Riding with riding in the middle of a motorcycle club. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. You know that that gets back to something I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about uh, the gun nuts and all that. Um, I did an interview recently with a guy who's a martial arts expert and. And uh, we were talking about being a 12, 13-year-old boy and being afraid, yeah. which is something that he and I shared. Because um, in my case, I was moving a lot. And yeah. I was a small, skinny kid, you know, redheaded, you know, braces and zits and the whole thing. And uh, so I studied martial arts because it gave me a sense of safety. Right. You know, uh, I never actually fought anyone using martial arts. Right. And, and in fact, it turned into a bizarre situation because my um, kung fu teacher killed his father so then i ended up like feeling like i was walking around with a ticking bomb in my pocket you know did um, he kill his father with kung fu yeah oh, yeah wow. yeah they were both martial arts experts and that, that's a long story All right. but, um but anyway the the point is that you know it's like you know you, you scratch a homophobe you find a closeted homosexual yeah. you know and i you know, and there's actually scientific evidence for that, as I'm sure you know. Um, and it just seems like these people with the the gun thing are just so frightened. Yes, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. Absolutely the case. America, Americans think that, it, you know, we're the home of the, what is it, land of the free, home land of the, the free, brave. Home of the brave, I believe, isn't it? But, but this country, I've lived all over the world. I've never seen a country as fearful on a cultural level. And I think that's expressed with the guns. It's expressed through, you know, the media focus on everything that can possibly go wrong. You know, NBC Nightly News, they're showing, oh, there's another blizzard in yeah. North Dakota. Well, what the, who gives a shit? That's not national news. You know, there have been like 15 cars slid off the road in South Dakota. I don't care. Why does it, it, it so it just seems like the, the, there's a national obsession, uh, with things that are, Threatening, yeah. And since the Soviet Union's not there anymore, yeah. You know what is there? There's terrorism, and but they don't focus on global warming. Why is that? Because there's no enemy. There, I think I there's guess. no enemy, and yeah. and of course it's also been seized upon as part of the great conspiracy theory that's being that's being fomented. Right. But it was interesting. I was at this TCA, the Television Critics Association, and basically 
apparently the way it works is as the days go on, different networks or presenters take over the convention. Right. And today, Monday and tomorrow is PBS. So uh, after we did our session in the morning about the show that I'm talking to you about, uh, Ken Burns showed up to present a, a film he's showing in PBS called The Central Park Five. Oh, I read about that. Yeah, man, that's produced by his daughter. Yeah, and basically, his yeah, his daughter and his son-in-law, basically. Yeah, and he. I mean, my understanding is, and don't quote me, but I, I guess you'll have to quote me. I'm on your podcast. <laughs> is that he became attached to it to lend his cachet so that it can get made and funded? Good. Well, but it was really. It's a very worthwhile thing. Yeah. I was in New York when that happened. Yeah, and yeah. I, I remember when it happened. And, and for those who don't, what happened was, as a woman was brutal. This is in the late '80s. Yeah. Toward, I won't even say the end because it was still crest this terrible very legitimate crime wave yeah. in the city and uh, this woman who became known as the Central Park she Jogger, was a stockbroker she was a piano teacher oh piano teacher I believe so oh. she was uh, she, she was just a, a very nice white woman yeah. who lived near New York and right. for a jog and was brutally beaten and raped right and soon after that these five black kids were arrested and charged with a crime and uh, well basically you know to give away the ending they were innocent their uh, their confessions, which is the only evidence, there was no physical evidence at all tying them to the scene, and there was evidence indicating another person who was raping people who, elsewhere. Who later confessed. Yeah, who later yeah. confessed, and because they didn't arrest him for this crime, went out and raped and killed some other people. These guys were arrested, and what Ken Burns was talking about today was just the climate of hatred and fear. Yeah. That's when we came up with this concept of wilding right. these kids these these yeah. who, were, who were black, which was not a coincidence. Um, were uh, were perceived as these animals. I don't know if you remember the talk of super predators, that mm. these urban kids were growing up to be super predators, these people that were somehow, I don't know, superhuman in their evil or subhuman in their mm. morals, whichever you choose. And the crack gave them superhuman Yeah, powers. or something like yeah. this. And there was just this tremendous fear of this other, these black kids. Ken Burns made an interesting point. These kids were unfairly prosecuted and sent to jail. They served uh, 13 years in jail for crimes they never committed. Nothing bad has ever happened to the men of the New York City police who wrongfully arrested them, coerced their confessions, and sent them to jail. Nothing has ever happened. Yeah. You can, you, and he pointed this out, it says, uh, contrast that with the uh, Duke lacrosse team rape case, right. where uh, some white kids, white boys were falsely accused, just as falsely accused, of raping a black woman. In that case, there was no actual rape, but nonetheless. The prosecutor who falsely accused them and charged them was disbarred and sent to jail. Yeah. And what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is white and black. The difference is, is one of ours and one of theirs. Which gets back to why the woman you interviewed is still pissed off. Yes. Because she and knows. Has a right to be. She knows that despite, you know, her being left into the building, led into the building, yeah. despite the fact that she herself is a heroine, she believes that still black people in this, in this country are still of, uh, of other. Yeah. Or not, you know. Even though one of them is now president, there's still others. There's so yeah. much anger at Barack Obama from the right wing or certain aspects of the right wing that seem to be about he's the president of them and he's going to take our stuff and give it to them. And it, it's it's funny, you know, we talk about Barack Obama as an African-American. He's half white, raised by white people. Yes. I mean, he's only African-American in a, in a visual sense. Yeah, I know. I and mean, he's only African-American in which we use that as a term to mean black-skinned people. Right. Yeah, yeah. Although, technically, he's more African-American than the people we call African-Americans because he's half African and half American, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I have a friend who's uh, Congolese. Yeah. And she lives in uh, New Hampshire. And, and she gets really irritated when uh, 
African American people include her and like we, you know, have yeah. to feel this or that. And she's like, I, I have no shared history. With yeah, I know. You, you know, know, I don't know what you're talking and, about. And the funny thing is, is the the actual African people we actually mean by African American have been Americans longer than my people have been Americans. You know, my right. family arrived here, you know, in the early 20th century. Ah, uh, and from where? From Russia, mainly Russia, uh, Poland. You right. know, we're just classic Eastern European Jews. Right. And, you know, when they got here, the ancestors of these alien African Americans were have already been here for generations. Yeah, yeah. What a mess. Anyway, so there we, we we've now delved into racial relations. Okay, That's so great. you were here. So did you go to the Golden Globes? No, 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 no. Oh, no. Geez, I, I was looking for you in the. Corner. I know. No, I don't. <laughs> so far, they haven't given one out to public radio. Maybe <laughs> or public radio or public TV documentaries, as far as I know. Yeah. So I, I don't. So you're there, like pitching a show that hasn't been on yet. Yeah. What we were doing is this is a, apparently uh, this is my first time through it. It's a ritual in television, not just yeah. PBS, but all the television producers is that the TV critics come from all over the country do it twice a year summer and winter and getting ready for the next season oh, I'll bet the hookers are really happy oh it was crazy that. better than dentists oh no wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> these are these are these are journalists these people have no spare money oh, okay. to spend on hookers very little of yeah this is not a this is not a this is not a power crowd but these people these are the guys and women who will write the features on your TV show uh -huh. when it premieres in April hopefully I mean you know to take my show as an example the hope is is that these TV writers and journalists bloggers now in the room will be intrigued enough by what they saw this morning that they will either based on what they saw this morning or later up with a follow-up interview or inquiry write a feature that will come out say in late april right before the show gets broadcast in may yeah, that'll okay. help promote it so right. that's why i was brought out here to you know to present the show to right. answer questions to talk about it how'd it go it went pretty well so i'm told i mean yeah. people seem to like it we had uh, they had myself and the director of the series and a guy named richard beeman who's a preeminent historian of early america in the yeah. constitutional convention and he's peppered in some scholarship and some anecdotes from the road and told right. some jokes and you know hey when you were doing the the constitutional thing did did you ever think about america's the relationship with the Constitution being similar to fundamentalist relationship with the Bible? Yes. As a matter of fact, that thought occurred to us early on, mm -hmm. that um, for certain Americans, certainly not everybody, they are interpreting a sacred text yeah, that was exactly. granted to that us. That cannot be changed. That cannot be changed. It cannot be questioned. World. That our, our task is to... You know, uh, what's the word? Uh, like perceive its meaning, to draw out the right. meaning that's there, not to impose anything on it. Right. Uh, and there, you can call them constitutional fundamentalists. And the same criticism is made of you can make of those people that you can make of religious fundamentalists, which is that basically your truth is not necessarily my truth, and just because right. you claim it is the only truth doesn't necessarily make it so. And the fact that in the document is referring to a world that no longer exists. There's that know, problem. The guns there's the language of the there's the language of the document. To take an obvious example, in the Eighth Amendment, it says that we can't have cruel and unusual punishments. What does cruel and unusual mean? Right. I mean, the phrase right. unusual implies a context. Usual, unusual. Yeah context changes right what's usual now is not usual then things will change i mean it seems to me and it seems to a lot of scholars and historians and lawyers that there's ambiguity built into the document that uh, is intentional right because they didn't want it to be seen as a sacred text right. didn't jefferson say there should be a constitutional convention every 18 or 19 Something years like that. They, well they, they i mean they never said explicitly hey posterity we want you to make up your own mind what this means right. but uh, among written constitutions in the world not only is it the oldest it is the shortest it's 4500 words without the amendments and uh they clearly at least to me and to a lot of other scholars I said other scholars as if I am one, to a lot of scholars, 
implied a lot of openness. They, yeah. they said, you guys figure this out. Right. Um, like there's a famous clause that says, you know, Congress shall, shall pass all laws that are necessary and proper to do what, it, what we say Congress shall do. Well, what does that mean, necessary and proper? You know, these are deliberately vague phrases. And they were specific when they wanted to be. I mean, they didn't say the president has to be old enough to be president. They said he has to be 35. So they could have said yeah. much more specific language if they chose. And there's a lot of legalistic language about the things they wanted to be specific about. It's a little bit like how Jesus gets twisted into someone completely different in the Bible. You yeah. Know? And it sounds to me like I'm not a I'm far from a scholar of the Constitution, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is that the the document was written in such a way that it would always be uh, flexible and changing and moving. I, I think it was because it was meant to create. I mean, here's here's the way I put it: that a lot of people think of the Constitution as to um, quote I think an old beer commercial, the document that settles all arguments. Yeah. I.e. I mean, I, sometimes I think they think of the Constitution the way that the followers of the of, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York now right. do. And they, you know, he died uh, after without. Um, not the Lubavitcher Rebbe, sorry. There was another guy. He he was this rabbi in Brooklyn, and everybody thought he was going to reveal himself as the Messiah. I'm not the head of the Lubavitchers. I, well, I'm getting confused. What they do is they take this dead rabbi's texts, and if you want an answer from him, you open it up and you you, you point. It's like throwing a dart. Yeah, and you yeah. see what the rabbi from the grave tells you. Oh, it's like a Ouija board. Sort of like yeah. that. And I think people sometimes think of the Constitution that way, that it's like this holy source of wisdom, and you just, your answer's in there. You just have to discern. Right. I mean, that's what I was looking for. And it's not discern, like that. Discern, yeah, and they, hire they, a lawyer. They, 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 I think what they wanted us to do is instead of settling arguments, they gave us a framework to have arguments without yeah. killing each other. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, they were creating the first democracy in the world since Greece. Every other society that they knew was ruled by power. Whoever had the most power, whoever controlled the army ruled. Even the nascent parliamentary England was about power and you know, the king's monarchy. They were trying to create the first society ever in which the most powerful people would not necessarily get their way. They wanted, it to, they wanted us to be able to figure stuff out without meeting in a field of battle. Did you get into the the relation with the Iroquois nation? No, there's a lot of things that you know we didn't. Talking about? Uh, uh, kind of, sort of. Well, that there's like a in the Iroquois nation, there were uh, they would have uh, congresses where yeah. people would. There were seven, I think, tribes in the Iroquois nation, and they would all come together, representatives from the different tribes, and there was a bicameral um, notion to it in that the men would sit in a circle uh, and make decisions, but then the women were in a circle behind them, the women who were chosen as the, you know, the, the wisest women. Um, and the women gave a yes or no. So the men would like work out the details, but and if the women said no, it was a veto, essentially. That's, that's much like many marriages. Do, do, um, <laughs> do, do, is it your understanding that that model was inspiring? The, uh, Benjamin Franklin knew about it and wrote about it and some, some other people. Yeah, I, I, that's I, I don't, I know yeah. who to ask, but I don't know for myself yeah. if that was a model for the, yeah, I think Howard Zinn talks about yeah. it in a people's history. He would. He right? would, yeah. 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 Indians didn't, didn't really play much in the Constitution except they're mentioned as, as people who don't count towards citizenship. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks. And All thank men you. except you. And except you, you and you. And then three-fifths of those guys and none of you guys. You know, I uh, when I uh, when you agreed to do this podcast, I put a thing out on Twitter. Yeah. If anyone had questions for I you. Saw. I saw. You saw that and retweeted it. You're, I did. How do you... One of the questions I had for you, um, and it's the same thing. I, I, I talked to Andrew Weil about this as well. 
Uh, how do you handle being so well known and, and, and remain a relatively normal person? Because I've known, I've known famous people yes. who I would never ask that question to because they're, they're not, not normal, normal at all. Well, keep in mind, my level of fame is very particular. It's also very minor. I mean, I'm, I, a, I'm know, public radio famous, which is yeah. different. Okay, it's but different I saw, real I came to your show in L.A. a month or two ago. Yeah, it, that was pretty extraordinary. That was yeah. not It was like, what, 7,000? 5,000 yeah. people packed yeah. the, that theater. I couldn't believe, I thought... You know, when, when we came, I thought we were going to be sitting in the front row, like, waving at you. And, you you know, I, I, I thought it was going to be 300 people. Yes. You know, whatever. I mean, you know, I'm enthusiastic people, but, but I had no idea. That's more of our typical shows. That was yeah, that was a little huge. nuts. Uh, it's, it's, I really do believe it has a lot to do with the nature and level of my fame. I am not that famous. B, the people who know me are public radio people. And, and public radio is a weird kind of... Um, niche yeah. in American They're very culture. well-behaved. They're very well-behaved. And basically, either you're a big fan of public radio or you've never heard of it. Right. And I contrast that with uh, television. I used to, This example is out of date now, but uh, I used to give the example of uh, Desperate Housewives in that I have never seen, to this day, I've never seen an episode of Desperate Housewives, but at a certain point, I could have told you the names of all the actresses yeah. on uh, on. Uh, on Desperate Housewives and what their interesting major plot points because <laughs> television into the culture yeah. and, and the same thing about Britney Spears and the yeah. same thing about pop the Kardashians stars. yeah the Kardashians may be the current example yeah. you can't help but know who they are yeah. and further if Kim Kardashian walked into a room we were in you and I would stare Oh. Because it's like, it's Kim Kardashian. No. I've heard of her. I'd stare because she's Yes, high, well, there's know. that too. But, I mean, it, yeah. there's just a level of... But Britney Spears, I wouldn't recognize if she walked in. Uh, maybe, but you'd be interested. You'd be like, wow, Britney Spears. Even though you've never, I assume, bought a Britney Spears record. Oh, I've got them all. Really? Oh, dancing. Dancing yeah. queen. That's maybe. me. Um, you know, did you hear about this guy talking about this phenomenon? This guy in New York. Like some guy. I don't know, just a guy, right? Yeah. Uh, had like 500 bucks and he hired a couple of big bodyguards yeah. and a couple of guys with cameras to like follow him through Times Square. So he walked through Times Square, the cameras, yeah. you know, movie cameras and these two big dudes. And uh, within seconds, he had a huge crowd around him. Sure. Because they were wondering who he was. Right. And then there were people planted in the around him interviewing the people in the crowd like, hey, did you have you seen Josh's latest film? Oh yeah, man, I loved his film. He was great. What's what's your favorite film that Josh? Oh, he, that one with and they they believed that they knew who he was. I'm I'm yeah. It they, was amazing. They thought he was somebody else. Or, yeah, there's a there's a whole. I remember once, it was a uh, I, I, I I it's a long story as to how this happened, but I ended up writing a screenplay which became the basis for the movie Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. No and way. I did. And what? I got to go, because of the union rules, thank you, WGA, to the premiere. And, uh, you know, it was my only, re probably at this point in my life, my only red carpet movie but premiere. Did you, did you get any money from this? I, every, like, six months I get a check for, like, $200. All right. Yes. Sweet. Awesome. Sweet. Anyway, and so the, I had one of the first cars to pull up, because it's always, like, in, you know, reverse order of importance. <laughs> And there were crowds, and it was a mix. This is like, you know, there was nobody famous. In the, Diego Luna was the most famous person in the movie. Yeah. John Slattery wasn't famous then. He was in the movie. And yeah. um, there's all these people lined up at the, at the, uh, uh, the red, you know, red velvet ropes, just like they're supposed to have, and all the paparazzi. And my car pulls up, and the door flings open, and I come out. And this is what happens. Everybody, everybody got really excited. 
Paparazzi raised their cameras, <laughs> saw who I was, i.e. nobody, nobody, and then lowered their cameras. Oh, not even a flash? Yeah, not even a flash. And oh, it, I mean, no. it occurred to me, they're all shooting digital, man. Yeah. It wasn't worth like the half a calorie it takes to press the button. But what was amazing was, is like, as soon as the paparazzi didn't take my picture, uh -huh. none of the people watching cared about me anymore. Yeah. Because I was nobody. If the paparazzi yeah. didn't think I was somebody, then yeah. I was nobody. So it, it's amazing. Instantaneous. Yeah. There's something about fame. And my yeah. point is, is that uh, I may have X millions of listeners on the radio and people may like me and they may you know, like, I just went to the Apple store to get something fixed and somebody's like, oh, I like your show. And it's nice. Yeah. That's but great. I'm never going to be the kind of person who walks into a room and causes a hush to go through the room. <laughs> I'm never going to be the kind of person. Unless your that, flies down. Or yeah, yeah. Or unless yeah. I, you know, start screaming. <laughs> Page six is never going to write about my love life. That's it's just, right. it's just, it's none of those things that yeah. we think of as being, you know, so you get part the, of you're getting the, the good parts. I get the good part. Without a lot I get, of the bad the, I get yeah. most of the good parts. Some of the good parts. I, I don't know what it's like to be really that famous, but yeah. you know, at the same time, I can eat dinner and not be bothered right. by anybody, which is nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, and and it does have to say, we'll credit the, the people who like my show. They're all very polite and very nice. Yeah, and people actually say later they send a tweet and say, "Oh, I saw you having dinner, but I didn't want to say anything." Yeah, that's, okay. that's cool. Say hello. That's cool. Yeah, and you're very responsive. I mean, I'm not as responsive as I should be. Well, but who? How could you see? That's that's my point. I've got like six thousand Twitter followers, right. right? And I it takes half of my day to answering tweets and emails well, and trying to be polite. You the know? great thing about zero. Twitter, and this is why I become such an enthusiast at it, is because there's a limit to your interaction. There's a bandwidth limit. Yeah. And that's really useful. It's got to be a quick. Yeah. And so what yeah. happened with me is I used to get emails from people and these long emails in yeah. which they were, you know, most of them really gracious. Oh, you know, you're so great. And I listened. I was ill, say, and I listened during my illness and it really helped. I yeah. really appreciate that. Thank you yeah. so much. I wanted to send you a note. Right. And you're like, that's great. I need to sit down and write back to this person. Right. And sometimes it was like, oh, I heard this thing in your show and I have a real problem with it. This is why. And you're like, oh, yeah, gosh, he's got a point. I got to. But those are like major commitments, right? You have to think about you have to that. Think about yeah. it. You have to respond in kind. Yeah. Twitter, 140 characters. Somebody says, "Hey, I love that show you did." Thanks. Yeah. And you just had an interaction. Right. That you can't, and you can feel good about it because there's an artificial limit. It doesn't. You don't have to feel bad about it. Just saying thanks, and people yeah. love it. People like, oh, I got to. Yeah. 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 People you responded. That's and, that's and because and people really because it is possible. People really appreciate it, and you get big points for it. And I. I have to say, in addition to, you know, the cynical, oh, I'm building my brand, I really like it. I like, this has to do with the fact that I come out of the theater, and I like being able to ah, see the people. The response from your audience. And I like having yeah. response from their yeah, audience. Yeah, that's a good point. I, and sometimes I, I've done this, is, is I, I felt lonely. And I'm like, hey guys, how are you? Or send something out into the world and wanted to see something come back. There's a way of communicating with the world yeah. that is actually kind of gratifying. Mm. Or sometimes I've had a problem. And I've sent a tweet out in the world, and it's gotten solved, which is amazing. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is very interesting. I mean, I, you know, Sex of Dawn's the first book I've ever published, but um, my experience is, is different from anyone before Twitter, I'm sure, because, you know, I can do a Twitter search of Sex at Dawn and see people talking to their friends yeah, about the book. Yeah, which is awesome. It's unbelievable, you know? Or just, you know, people can find me really easily and ask a question or whatever. 
Whereas before, you know, you write a letter to the publisher, yeah. and then six months later, it gets to the author, and you know, it, it, and, and it's, it's great, so and, and it allows you to sort of find your audience and talk to them. It allows you to, you know, propagate yeah. it. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of the loneliness out of writing, especially uh, writing. Yeah, or you know, yeah. or anything like that. You know, I mean, it's 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 great. I mean, there are people. Um, my daughter, among one, who, who are convinced that, you know, this technology that we have is ruining intercommunication. I guess my daughter is angry mm. the fact that I look at my phone instead of talking to my family. Right. She has a point. <laughs> but in general... How old is she? She's 15. She just turned 15. And she's a neo-Luddite. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, she is. She her. writes with a fountain pen. Really? Um, on it, parchment. On, not quite. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it actually has allowed... I mean, we were talking about nerdery earlier. When I was a kid in the 1970s I was into all these really weird things nerdery I was nerdery it took me a minute to figure nerdery. out what the hell nerdery was I was into Star Trek and I was into yeah. J.R.R. Tolkien and books like that and science fiction and there was nobody for me to talk to about that except for the other couple of nerdy friends right uh, who had their own problems, right? In the Dungeons and Dragons, Dragons thing, society, you know, Dungeons yeah. and Dragons thing. And I had, I, I had, because you know, I just wasn't into the things that most kids were into. I was into my own little things. Now, right. you can find a community, no matter how bizarre or obscure your enthusiasm. You can find other people. You can find people to talk. You can find a community. You can, and, and a lot of people, bless their hearts, take the virtual communities that they create and make them into real communities. Let's all get together. Yeah, you know, and and that's awesome. And yeah. I, I'm envious. I'm envious of uh, of them for having that ability to yeah. to like to get outside the physical limitations. One of the things our mutual friend and I was about to say the mutual admirer. What is the opposite of mutual admirer? Somebody who two Someone people we both, both admire. admire. Yeah, you know, one of the things he tells. Who, who is it? Who? Dan Savage. Oh, Dan. Say his name. Yeah. Oh, he admires us, doesn't he? Well, I guess I, so. I think. Well, I hope so. You but better. both of us admire him. And yeah. I know he... Well, anyway. I think, I think it's like, I admire him, he admires you. Anyway. <laughs> and I admire you. Well, there you so are. So it's, it's a, a circle, circle of yeah. admiration. One of the things he says to gay kids who are growing up in small towns is, get the hell out of a small town yeah. because you don't... You, you I, know. Was, I was thinking when you were talking yes. about the community, I was thinking the It Gets Better project. It does. It's, yeah. and, and it's yeah. like, he's telling the gay kids to get out and yeah. go to a big city where there are more gay people because right. there's you know, only a per small percentage of anybody is gay. So yeah. increase your odds. Right. And the internet allows everybody to get out of their small towns and meet yeah. other people like them. We're, um, I'm, I'm working with some people now on a, a website for ethical, ethically non-monogamous people. Okay. And it's the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, you're in, in, I was talking with my partner last night and he was saying that he got an email from someone who on the site. Since you're talking about ethical non-monogamy, you yeah. probably should specify your business partner. Uh, his name's Andrew. Okay. But he runs the website. Right. The, the, the website's called Kotango. K-O-T-A-N-G-O dot com. It's still in beta testing, right. so we haven't really launched it yet. But uh, any listeners who are interested in ethical non-monogamy, it's kind of a, it's a, we set it up as a community site where people can get information yeah, and, sure. make, you know, and certainly uh, there are photos and profiles and stuff. So if you're into hooking up with somebody, you can meet them. But the whole idea of the site is that it's sort of um, modeled on a bonobo troop. Right. So the women are very respected. There's no slut shaming, yeah, no bullshit, right. no harassment, you know. And, uh, and it, you know, and also if you're, you're monogamous or you're, you're whatever your situation is, it's a place to just hang out and talk, you know. And, and you can ask people, like, oh, what's it like? You know, how do you yeah. deal with jealousy? Because people yeah. are curious about this stuff. But anyway, yeah, he said he was talking with somebody and 
in Iowa, I think, and they drove 400 miles to meet another couple just to have dinner and yeah. hang out because well, that's what to. you need to do. Plus, yeah. you're in a small town, and you know, like every word gets around. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the It Gets Better Project dance thing, and that meant I, I had a huge emotional response to it, just like I had oh, a huge yeah. emotional response yeah. to the musical Wicked, right? Uh, I haven't seen that. Wicked is, Wicked is great. Uh, but it's interesting. Wicked is really, really popular with two groups, adolescent girls and gay men. And the reason is, is because it's what it's about is growing up very different hmm. and finding your own way. Right. And it's done very artfully. And it's, you know, the, the way in which the lead character is different is that she's green. She's a witch. But it's a tremendous, it, it's hit, obviously, a chord hmm. with, you know, because gay men... I guess gay women often feel that they grew up very different, very alienated, sure. sometimes very ostracized. Yeah. Uh, and well, adolescent girls feel the same way. But man, I saw that and I was in tears at the first act finale where she literally takes off because that's how I felt growing up. And so for me, the same thing with the, uh, you know, It Gets Better project is that I wanted to do, I never did because I didn't want to. I didn't want to feel, seem like I was mocking the, the, the seriousness of it, which is they're trying to save gay kids from suicide. Right. But I wanted to yeah. say, here's a message from like a heterosexual guy to, yeah. the, to the nerdy heterosexual kids. It's like, yes, you're going to be fine. And yes, you're going to get out of there. And people are going to find people who appreciate what you can do. Right. And yes, you're going to get laid eventually because there are girls out there who will appreciate what you have. And, and I, but like I said, I didn't want to. Yeah, Cassie and I debated whether or not we should make a video, and it was the same thing. I mean, on one side, we're sort of in that, you know, sex-positive yeah. world and all that, so maybe we should. But in the end, we decided, mm, yeah, it's not really our, Yeah, you know, we're both heterosexual. and, and People did. I mean, Stephen Colbert and President yeah, Obama did sure, messages, which sure, is great. Which is wonderful. But, you know, but how are you going to compete with the real messages out there and, like, Tim Gunn talking about killing, oh, trying to kill himself? Yeah. And, you know, who am I to stand next to Tim Gunn and say, oh, by the way, I also felt bad yeah. no shut up yeah. <laughs> hey speaking of Dan Savage he, he he did send in a question he said um, yes I saw to ask you about that three way you had with him and Paula Poundstone yes now is uh, that why is they my call her fault. Poundstone is that a yeah, no 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 it's an interesting it's funny how that happened I think what happened was is Dan who I know and adore uh, as a person and as a you know everything he is um, I forget what it was he, he started it somehow. He tweeted something that was like, oh, I love Paula Poundstone. I, I says, I, I, he, he tweeted, by the way, I just, I, I'm, you know, I'm really angry at Peter Sagal and he knows why. And, and Paula was involved somehow. I forget the original tweet. My father, by the way, saw this and said, is Dan Savage mad at you? What does Dan Savage have against you? Like, I'm, fine. I'm trying to keep my parents off and Twitter. I, and I tweeted back, and I, I had to do this, because he had mentioned me and Paula Poundstone, and I was like, worst threesome ever. <laughs> From all perspectives. perspectives. Among other things, because you know Dan is somewhatly famous for being gay. Uh, I am not, and Paula is asexual, as she will tell anybody. Oh, is she? Yeah, Paula's joke is after taking care of you know her three kids all of whom are special needs to some extent and uh her you know like 16 cats and rabbits and dogs she says the last thing i want to do is get into bed and find somebody else who needs something from me <laughs> but yeah paula that's that's she's quite open about it she's not interested in that so it would in fact i, it, I mean you, you could you could game it out it would be the worst threesome you'd yeah. have a guy not you'd have a guy not interested in the girl interested in the guy as objectively who wouldn't be interested in him who'd be interested in the girl who's not who interested. Was interested in anybody right. 
right. so nothing would happen. You'd be yeah. there's nobody there's no intersecting lines there. Well, it sounds like the beginning of a joke. A yes. gay guy and asexual and a straight guy walk into a bar. Pretty much. Yeah. Or, yeah. So yeah. it would in fact be, as I was trying to joke, the worst threesome ever. Uh, and this led to <laughs> horrendous jokes about uh, it's just never happened. Okay, I see a Twitter thing here. We're talking about Twitter, yeah. like a hashtag worst threesome ever. Yeah, that could yeah. Okay. That could, that so could people start. listening to this, let's you know yeah, see some worst threesome. I beat that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Beat that one. All right, so so I guess you you know you're not going to respond to that in yeah. detail. So then we had let's see Pamela Hopkins asked uh one of the things you're famous for is running and yes. you've got a, actually you've got a book i do i have a book contract <laughs> oh no no, no. I, I need to kind of write it oh okay good because yeah. we have the same uh, yeah we're si you're simon schuster yeah yeah i'm simon schuster and i met your editor one day yeah when i Which went is in better than i, I haven't met him yet oh he's like, he, I, nice. I, I went in that day and yeah everybody was nice you yeah. know um Met it. I met um, the publisher. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Jonathan. Jonathan Carp. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting guy. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, you're writing about running. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was amazed that anybody wanted to hear about that, because one of the principles of running is no one wants to hear about your running. Nobody wants to hear about your running. Yeah. Although, I mean, I read what was that book? Jim Fix. Jim Fix's complete book of running. Yeah. Which I recently reread. Yeah, that was a huge book in the seventies. Yeah. yeah, and that like I went out and bought running shoes yeah. and went running Me in too. the rain and shit. And then Jim Fix had a heart attack on the side of the road and he I did. quit. Dropped yeah. dead. Yeah, there are people, a lot of people like you. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> but I honestly, I mean, I had learned that nobody wanted to hear about my running, and I, it's yeah. become a pretty serious thing. And I became a columnist for Runner's World, uh -huh. uh, which was a way to talk about running to people who wanted to hear about it. You got in some trouble. What did you oh, do? God. You like you do. This is what I did. Approved of somebody cheating in a no, race? No, no, I cheated. Something? Oh, you? Well, cheated. I didn't cheat. What I did was uh, I didn't cheat in the sense like Rosie Ruiz jumped right. to the finish line, pretend I had won when I hadn't run the <laughs> right. race. Right. What I did was I ran a good portion, twenty miles of the twenty eleven Chicago Marathon uh -huh. without registering for it, uh -huh. and. Uh, uh, that's called in running circles banditing. To bandit a race is to run a race without paying for it or getting a bib, you know, the number thing on your front, uh -huh. and registered, you know, to just run the course. And th 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 this is frowned upon in general because the idea is you're using up resources, you know, be it the food or drink they provide you or just the uh -huh. general sense of the street closures and the security provided without paying for it. Right. But I, you know, I'm like, what? There's 40,000 runners. One more is not going to make a difference. And I'll bring my own Gatorade. And I could use the company as I'd run 20 miles, which I intended to do that day to train right. for a marathon. First time I'd ever done that, ever. And I made the mistake of mentioning it in a blog post. Right. And I became the most hated man in American running <laughs> for a good month. There were, you know, the, the, yeah. the message boards yeah, blew I saw up. Some of that. I'm, I'm not into running. Yeah, at all. And, Even and, I saw and, and it sort of died down. And then the Wall Street Journal did a story about it. They did a story about yeah. the phenomenon of banditing, in which I was in the lead paragraph. Recently, Peter Sagal ran the Chicago Marathon. Yeah. For it. And so it was really, it was interesting. It was like my first experience of being really hated. That's so. There you go. There's yeah. the downside of fame, you right? Are. If you had just been some guy, it would have been. Yeah, that would have hated me anyway. But uh, yeah, but, but I got people, I got yeah. I got very heartfelt letters about the example I was setting, and yeah, somebody for somebody people threatened me with, for the youth of America. People threatened me with violence. <laughs> really? If I saw Peter doing that, I'd thrown to the ground. Oh, and uh, eh, it's all right. It yeah. was fun. I got an article about it because let me tell you about running. It's hard to think of things to say about it. Yeah. So anytime something happens, like oh yeah, it's an article. Okay, well, here's what Pamela Hopkins wants to know. Yes. What mile 
Yes. Can you really let your mind go and just zone, get into the zone? Uh, that's a good question. It, 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 I think what she means is like, when does it stop hurting? Yeah. I guess. And when is, do is you that say a runner's high? Well, yeah, there is a runner's high. Things. There is a runner's high. I think that. Uh, well, when people talk about a runner's high, they t- depending on what they're talking about, they could be talking about a physiological thing in which your endorphin levels go up yeah. and you actually feel kind of a euphoria, and that can happen and has happened to me. Uh, Isn't but, that like when you're near death? Yeah, like all of a sudden you have like out of body experiences. <laughs> you're right, going toward the light. Yeah. But there are, um, but there's another sense of just when does it stop hurting? Because mm. if you, if I were to say to you, I mean, I, know, I assume you don't run anymore. No. Right. If I, if you and I went running right now, we'd run say a mile. I'm guessing, maybe, maybe more, and you'd be miserable. Yeah. You know, you'd be gasping, and your yeah. hearts would be, your heart would be pounding, and your lungs would be aching, and I'd be standing there looking at you, going, "Come on, it's only a mile." Yeah. Um, and a lot of people who start running or even go after it for the first three or four months, they just never get to the point where it stops hurting, but it eventually does. It depends on your age and how much you go after it and how much you train. The more intense that you train, the quicker the improvement comes. Of course, you don't want to train too intensely because then you break and that's bad. So now you're talking about cardiovascular. I'm talking about a general fitness. I'm talking about, I mean, what most people complain about when they first start running is they talk about you're straining your lungs, you're straining your heart to let you know. My teeth hurt. Your teeth hurt? Yeah. Every you're, time I'm doing it wrong. Yeah, I guess so. Use your feet. I've got to get different shoes. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Every time I do um, any really intense cardiovascular stuff, my teeth hurt. Do they throb? Yeah. That's probably because the, 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 your blood pressure in your jaw is high. Maybe you have constricted blood vessels. Uh. You're feeling the throb. That's probably the you know your heart pumping your blood. Uh. That's a guess. I mean, yeah. I'm not a doctor Thank either. You, doctor. Yeah. 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 Your doctor fine arts, I'm Doctor Fine Arts, I'm nothing. GFA, I'm nothing. So um, then, when it, so it stops hurting. It's more a question of training rather it's than a question what of training. Mile, and, and, you know, and, 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 and yeah, and it's a question of. I mean, and here's the other thing, which is that if you're trying to improve, if you're pu- we have to push yourself. If you push yourself, it's never going to be always easy because the right. definition of pushing yourself is pushing yourself out of a comfort zone, right. which in this case is more literal than most people mean it. Yeah. You know, in order to improve, you have to make yourself uncomfortable. Now, why do you run? Do you, if you don't run, do you feel bad? Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm an addict. I had to, I strained a muscle and, and I got the flu, so I didn't run for four days, and I started to lose my mind. Really? Yeah. In for, what sense? You uh, restless? Or I'm restless. It's a physical thing. Yeah, I, I'm restless. I get nervous. I get, uh, I, I start to get depressed. I, because I was a, I was an overweight kid and started running to lose weight, I started to have this fantasy oh. of inflating, oh, right. of becoming instantly enormously obese again, even though I was never enormously obese. It's right. kind of weird. But yeah, it's an addiction. Oh. It really is. And I'm, for all I know, there are medical studies that might indicate that Man, I wish I were addicted to fitness. It's, as my wife says, when she complains about me being gone running all the time, I say, what would you rather me be addicted to? Yeah. 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 It's, and a lot of people report that. that, that you, have to, you have to work your way up to it. It doesn't come easily. But once you get into it, you have to start of you, know, yeah. you have to you have to man i i can i i i'm one of these people who you know i love i love my body i respect it i feel but i don't miss exercise if i don't do it i could spend like a week in a hammock and like be completely content. you have to work your way up to that 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 level of of addiction where you do miss it most yeah. people you know i mean we evolved to conserve energy right right i mean uh, mainly because you know I well but we evolved to walk as well you know well there's a theory that we evolved to run yeah well let's get let's talk about that born to run right. did you enjoy that I book? did I did too I love that it's book. a great book I mean he's a I mean mainly I mean for all his talk about running and history of running 
that book is a great story. It's, it's, a, it's a great Trude, narrative. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 yeah. In his, in his, his and Caballo Blanco. Who, who died, as you probably yeah. know, yeah, just I last year. Or running. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Found his body. He mm-hmm. was running. Um, you know, I was in the late 80s. I was in the Barranca del Cope, yeah. the Copper Canyon, in that little town of Batopilas that yeah. he talks about, where the Tarahumara, yeah. you know, come down. Um, yeah, I had some funny experiences there. That was that little town. I don't think he mentions in the book, but it's this little town at the base of the Copper Canyon in Chihuahua, in northern Mexico. And actually, the Copper Canyon is deeper than the Grand Canyon. Right. But it's not as beautiful. Right. Uh, the, the striations on the rock walls aren't as colorful. Um, but that town was the second place in all of Mexico to get electricity. Really? After the capital. The reason being that there were all these copper mines. Right. And so they had the electricity running in so they could operate the mines. And um, when I was there, which I think was probably 88 or 89, they were rewiring the town because... Pancho Villa had cut off their electricity supply and they'd never gotten around wow. to fixing it until wow. the late 80s. Is what I was so they had a little gap there. A little gap, yeah, yeah. I guess the price of copper dropped in the yeah. time, so it wasn't worth it. Well, his, Christopher, Christopher McDougall? No, yeah, Christopher, yeah. yeah well, his so. theory, for those who haven't read the book, is that humans evolved to be uh, persistence hunters. Right. I.e., we weren't faster than an elk. We could just run longer than the elk could and eventually you wear the elk out and the elk yeah. drops dead and you eat the elk. Right. And it's it's a great theory, uh, and there's not a lot of evidence for it because those persistence hunters who he supposes didn't leave a lot of evidence behind. But he does doesn't he find like one tribe in Africa that's still hunting this way? Well, the uh, yeah Kung yeah Kung people the who are genetically the most ancient people. They they have the most uh, DNA in common with uh, you know two hundred thousand year old. Um, fossilized remains uh they do persistence hunting of antelope in the kalahari desert and also there there was lots of cases of persistence hunting uh particularly back to the iroquois uh indians in northeast united states and and eastern canada um particularly in the winter they would chase deer in the snow and the deer couldn't you know break through the snow so that was pretty easy yeah (laughs) but one of my favorite theories that relates to all this is you know there's a big um question in evolutionary science why did the human brain suddenly grow so quickly right because you know for a long time it didn't change its size forward 50,000 years ago yeah something well 50,000 is is the cultural uh, right you know all of a sudden we we started getting smarter but the the brain expanded earlier than that uh I think about 200,000 years ago. Um, and nobody knows why. And one of the more interesting theories I'd read about that, well, there are two very interesting theories. One is uh, Terence McKenna, who hypothesized that the our early human ancestors were following uh, herds uh, around in Africa and, you know, scavenging from the kills of lions and hyenas and whatever, and also, um, you know, old ones that would die. Or, um, and what grows in the uh, shit of ungulates? Right. Hallucinogenic mushrooms. Ha! Huh. So his theory is that the, our ancestors were eating these mushrooms. The mushrooms gave them a, a survival advantage because pattern recognition improves. You get hornier, so you're having more sex and having more babies. That's kind of an outlet. Yeah, I, theory. I, I like it, though. But, I mean, it, it goes even further because then he hypothesizes that... Uh, the mushroom spore is the perfect interstellar um, life form because 
a mushroom spore is uh, what's the word? Viable, infinitely viable. It'll stay, you know, a million years later, if you keep it in a vacuum, throw it in the dirt, it'll grow, right? Right. So time doesn't matter. So it's perfect for so going So he's thinking that the human brain evolved because of interstellar mushrooms. He's thinking, yeah, the panspermia, you know, oh, yeah. life. That, oh, yeah. But instead of life itself, it's consciousness that went out, uh, you know, through the universe in the form of mushroom spores. Clearly. So that, all right, now, it's now like a slightly less outlandish okay. theory for this. Let's try another man. Uh, a Polish scientist whose name I don't remember, but his theory was that because of this persistence running, uh, the overheating of the brain was a yeah. problem. So we developed redundancy in the brain so that some of the brain could shut down from the overheating, but there'd still be enough to keep you running so right. you'd eventually catch the antelope. Right. And so it's sort of like building in a backup yeah. system. Sure. And then the backup system becomes part of the main system and suddenly you've got a system twice as strong. Right. You know? That's a pretty... I like the idea of consciousness being sort of an accidental byproduct. Right. You know, do you know about uh, Gold's theory of um, spandrels? Stephen Jay Gold? Yeah. No. Yeah, that's I, beautiful. I met Stephen Jay Gold. Oh, did you? I did. We shouldn't speak badly of the dead, but, but yeah, I heard he was a kind of a prick. He could be. Yeah. Uh, I, he's a he comes across as a nice guy yeah, in he, his writing. He was, you know, he's, he's very nice unless he's talking about somebody who he doesn't respect, and then he could be uh, brutal. Yeah. Yeah, the person who told me about him had seen him somewhere at a... It was a literary agent, actually, and I, I don't remember the specifics, but it was basically... You know, someone asked him a question, an innocent, well-intentioned question, and he just trashed them for yes. their ignorance. That's, I, I could believe that based on my very brief... Yeah, that's too bad. But anyway, his theory of spandrels is great. There's an essay called The Spandrels of San Marcos, and basically he says, um, you know, there's this uh, cathedral in, in Italy, and you look at the, the arch... You know, you've got the the walls are come to a right angle. The, yeah. the beams of the of the ceiling and the the columns of the arch come to a right angle. But the arch uh, is this. So there's this triangular section that needs to be filled in with something, and so it's filled in with these beautiful sculptures that right. look like they're part of the structure, right. but actually they're not at all. They're just the filler. Right. So he says that happens in evolution as sure. well. There are all sorts of things that are part of the body that we think, oh, well, you know, what's the evolution? purpose of that there is no evolutionary purpose it's right. a byproduct of something else I don't, what the hell am I talking about? I don't know we were talking about running persistence running yeah the size of the oh brain. and the redundancy of the brain, brain is being right, part right, of the right. running right. well I will tell you this about about uh, I don't know about the evidence for persistence running ie that humans primarily their primary uh, evolutionary advantage was their ability to run long distances at a moderate pace right I will tell you that anybody who becomes a serious runner and goes through the transformation that happens to you uh, as a serious runner is willing to believe that because first of all it is amazing what you find that you can do anybody almost hmm. barring an injury right or some sort of bodily defect just the hidden do. the potential of the body yeah the potential of the body. all of a sudden you're like you know a normal human being who most people can't run for a bus without losing their breath in America yeah. or the whole whole industrial world with enough training you can run a marathon anybody can run a marathon in my view it's amazing that that's possible. That yeah. that uh, and, the, right. and there's also a physical transformation. You lose weight, your posture increases, your health increases, and and I'm assuming I've never been a, a professional weightlifter, but you know that's all about transforming the body into something other. 
this is a feeling about transforming the body into something that it was supposed to be. It's like coming home. Yeah, things fall away. The excess weight, the in many cases, your posture problems or aches or pains. You sleep better. Everything improves, not to some sort of superhuman ability, yeah. but to what seems the new normal, if right. you will. So it's a, it's a very compelling feeling that you're not you're not you're not adding, you're not changing, you're reverting to something. That's that's very well put. Now, and that leads to the question of, of uh, Born to Run. Yeah. Are you a toe runner? No. Um, and nor do I... Uh, uh, th- basically, he um, advances in his book this idea that these running shoes are crippling us. Right, because we're striking on our heels yeah. and that's it's, causing it's screwing up. It's and screwing up. And basically, you know, as he points out, there is no evidence that running shoes prevent injuries. There's also no evidence that running barefoot pre- prevents injuries. It's really different for different people. I ran with those barefoot shoes for a while, and as, I did it for the magazine. And as soon as I was done with it, I took them off and haven't looked back. Mm. They just didn't, they weren't right for me. Uh, there's a running style that they encourage that's better for running, that's more about striking in the middle of the foot as opposed to on the heel. Right. You can do that with regular shoes. What I tell people um, when I uh, when I talk about this is, I once ran the New York Marathon in 2009, and I got into the uh, VIP, uh, again, not because I was famous, but because I knew somebody, VIP Corral. So I'm standing there next to Edward Norton, the actor. Oh, He's running the Edward marathon. Edward Norton, thankfully married to Salma Hayek. I think you're right. And Edward Damn. Norton, uh, Edward Damn, Norton, Edward. yeah, but I was coming back with you. <laughs> anyway, Edward Norton was running to benefit this African tribe, this Maasai tribe that needed whatever. And he was running, he was public, this is his cause, his celebrity uh-huh. cause, which I'm all for, you know, use your celebrity for something good of your choice. And he had these two Maasai warriors with him, running with him. And they were in complete, you know, battle dress. They got the paint, they got the feathers. And on their feet, brand new Nike running shoes. <laughs> and I'm like, those guys are running 26 miles the streets of New York with running shoes. I'm going to as well. Yeah, it's different running a dirt trail yeah. than running the streets of New York. Basically, yeah. you know, and these guys weren't running barefoot either. They're running in sandals. Basically, my feeling is whatever works. I know one guy who had terrible, a good friend of mine who was a triathlete who had terrible pain in his hips as soon as he switched to minimal shoes. The, the pain went away. Great. Yeah. It works for him. Have you had knee problems or back yeah, problems? I'm starting to get, I don't know, I'm a bitch. I'm starting to get sort of calf and Achilles problems, which I need to figure out soon. Uh, I might, and you know, if they don't, if they continue to persist, I might try those barefoot shoes again. Right. And see if that helps. Yeah. I, I can't stand the toe thing. I've got the minimal shoes, yeah. but not with the toes. Yeah. You know, that I, I don't like sticking my toes into constricted it, it, it is a weird feeling. Little yeah. toe gloves. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oak Park Library. I, I don't know if this is your local this library. This is my local library. I thought it might be which is why i wrote it down they want to know what you're reading right now. right now i uh it's funny I, I like a lot of people i'm going through a bunch of different books one thing i am reading now although i cannot find the time to sit myself and devote myself to it is an extraordinary work of genius and i don't use those terms lightly uh which is chris ware's building stories oh i thought you were talking about the book that's actually called an extraordinary Extraordinary work of just a staggering work of that's very good that's a good book no an actual (laughs) work of genius an actually heartbreaking work of staggering genius to paraphrase dave eggers uh chris is a friend of dave so i guess he wouldn't mind um it's called building stories chris is a cartoonist graphic novelist who is to the who is to cartoons what or graphic novels or comic strips or whatever you want to call them what Michelangelo was to ceilings he is the greatest ever in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of people who do it in the sense of the precision and beauty of his art but mainly what he's able to do with the form and he is so far beyond even in a world in which graphic novels are 
routinely adult and serious intended as serious literature he's so far beyond what anybody else is doing it's it's astonishing his other great novel was called uh, jimmy cargan the smartest man in the world smartest boy in the world excuse me this is and this is why it's so frustrating what it is is um it is a large box the size of uh, i guess what you might put a very large board game in like one of those old-fashioned board games about yeah you know, maybe two feet long by my aunt got wide. this for christmas yeah yeah, it's like you assemble. Inside the, the box are comic books, comic strips, a newspaper, a foldable out board with a diagram, and all this material is devoted to telling the story of a number of people, one in particular who live in this building. And it is, you know how, I guess the, the only comparison is to um, Ulysses which is this extraordinary work of literature about one day. Mm. This is an extraordinary work of imaginative literature and art and everything else about more or less one person and her life, which in its, in its detail is utterly dull. And in the impact of his ability to present her life and her interior life and the life around her, it, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Huh. And it's one of those books you read and you're like, it makes everything else you're reading look idiotic because nobody else has the insight into what is going on in the human heart is Chris Ware. I'm sorry, I didn't wow. say anything funny for a good two minutes. Because hey, it's, it's amazingly good. Yeah, this isn't a comedy show. I know. You say whatever the hell you uh, want. And weirdly, so I'm yeah. switching back and forth to a lot of other things. I'm trying to get my way through Wolf Hall, which is the Booker Man, the Man Booker Prize winning book about Thomas Cromwell, uh, the advisor to Henry VIII, oh, yeah, yeah. that everybody loved. And I'm finding it hard to get through, and I don't know why. It's very uh, stylized. Uh, and uh, my friend Ian Chillog convinced me to try a Jack Reacher novel. Uh-huh. Which is and Tom Cruise hilar- movie, yeah, yeah, hilariously bad but kind of addictive uh-huh. in a stupid way. It's it's yeah. sort of it's sort of non-sexual pornography for the man. Yeah, if, if yeah, it's macho. It's so it's yeah. it's about this loner who uh-huh. has no emotional attachments, oh, yeah. but is insanely capable and incredibly deadly. Billy Jack, sort of like that. It's like it's Quite like it's like the, yeah, it's like the loner. Except this guy is enormously huge, can kill people with either hand, two simultaneously if he needs to. Yeah. Master of of, of <laughs> armament, and it's hilarious, you know, because it's like yeah. oh, you know, it's like oh wow, Jack Reacher's here. Now, now the bad guys will be, and just like yeah. it's so stupid, and yeah. you cannot stop reading it. Right, I saw the the billboard says something like, "If Jack Reacher's coming for you, you deserve it." Yeah, it's 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 yeah. hilariously yeah. so obvious. Yeah, it's like reading this book will make your penis feel larger. <laughs> they might as well put that in the cover, and it's very weird switching back and forth between these books. So, have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? I haven't, nor do I have any interest in reading Fifty has Shades. Has your wife of Grey. read it? My wife has not read it, nor does she. Have, have you read it? No, I haven't. Yeah, no. why would you want to read it? I I wouldn't. It yeah. is hilarious. I did have one friend of me who will identify. I was like, hey, have you heard of this 50 great? Because I have this, this book I read, this bizarre reputation, sort of the sexual expert. And it's like, have you ever heard about this book? Because my wife's reading it. You know, the Book of Vice is the Book of Vice, about, yeah. Which actually is right here. Yeah, the Book of Vice. The, the book very book. naughty things on how to do them. Yeah. Which yeah. includes, which is why I came to your book, obviously. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I have a small bit about adultery in the, you know, evolved human nature in which I get, I present the presiding theory. Now, you weren't riding a motorcycle for researching that book. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't consider that as a vice, I should say. <laughs> uh, what, what are you talking about? Oh, your friend. You're saying your friend. Yeah, people are like, oh, my wife's reading this. What is this thing about? It's yeah. like, oh, good for you. Your wife's reading it. You never know. Yeah. I mean, it does seem weird, but it, it, it may just, this mediocre book, I'm told, uh, just sort of gave a, a American woman and I guess European woman too permission to, because I was in Iceland. There was a whole display of those books translated in Icelandic, to, uh, permission to like explore their... Uh, their kinky side. Their, their submissive side, yeah. I, I mean, the, the thing about that book, from what I've, I've read and heard from people, is that it's, 
it's a deeply conventional story. Yeah. You know, the guy's a billionaire. He's super good looking. You know, he needs to be fixed. Yes. Right. And, and eventually by the end, the woman convinces him that, you know, he's all his kinkiness is due to his uh, being abused as a child or something. Yeah. He works his way through yeah. it to a nice normal. If people, uh, if people want to see something and not read something, but see something that actually depicts a, a, a subdom relationship correctly and romantically and affectionately, they should see the movie Secretary. Wonderful movie. A great movie, which uh, I saw on the recommendation of a friend. And I'm, and it's amazing because it, it's written, obviously, by somebody who understands the dynamic yeah. and understands how, like, affection and a relationship. And, and humor. I, yeah. I, as I, it's a year since I've seen it, but I remember it being lighthearted and humorous yeah. and very human. Yeah. Uh, who's the actor? Sex, Lies, and Video. Yeah, James, James Spader. James Spader. And, uh, yeah. and Maggie Gill. Hall. Yeah, yeah, and it's and and I didn't understand that's what it was about, but that's what it's about. Yeah, I mean it's and and these pe and and these people do not end up fixed; they end up happy. Right, and yeah, they and, find their kinks fit together perfectly. Exactly, yeah. and 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 neither of them are perfect, and both of them need kind of fixing, and they both find a way to fix themselves through this, you know, subdom relationship that works Spe perfectly. Speaking of films that treat sexuality in an intelligent way, have you ever seen a film called Itumama Tambien? Yeah. Oh. Diego Luna, who's in that movie, was in my movie Havana Nights. Oh, I wish okay. I'd gotten to meet him. That's there a great movie. Go. Yeah, yeah, that's a great movie. Really that's beautiful a movie. Yeah, I my story with that movie is um, when Casilda and I got together. She moved to Barcelona, and uh, and her daughter was uh, I think twelve. Her daughter lived with her father in Mozambique. And so her daughter was coming to visit, and I had met her several yeah. times, but this would be the first visit when yeah. I was living with her mother. Right. And so it's kind of, you know. Olbushi, the daughter. 12, 13. You took her to see you to Mama Tambien. Yeah. You did? But I didn't I know. I was making a little joke no, there. No, I didn't know. I, did, I, I just remember, I thought, let's go to a movie. And I remembered, I looked at the movies, that it was, and I remembered somebody had said, that's a good movie. Oh, Lord. So, <laughs> you, so <laughs> let me think. You're taking your girlfriend or wife at this point? A girlfriend. You're taking your girlfriend's yeah, and daughter, daughter to see... And the first scene, I don't know if you remember, but the first They're humping scene on a bed. Is, yeah, just straight up, yeah, like, you know, the dude's ass. Wonka, Wonka, yeah, Wonka. It's yeah. like watching a piston or something. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, nice move, Chris. Yeah. But by the end of the movie, I thought, you know what? This is, uh, you know, there's nothing. First of all, her daughter's cool. You yeah. Know, there's no yeah. problem. Hey, Joanna, if you're listening to this. Yeah. Uh, she's now 21 or something, 22, 23. I don't know. Sorry, Joanna. <laughs> no, I thought I was doing well by mentioning yeah. her. Now I can't remember how old she is. But, um, yeah, it's such a, a mature treatment of sexuality and those two kids, uh, Bernal, Bernal, uh, yeah, Gabriel Garcia, Bernal, Bernal and Diego yeah, Luna. Beautiful, beautiful film. Okay, uh, Aaron Dean asks, "Have you ever noticed that your name can be reconfigured to say Peter Zagal?" No, but thank you. <laughs> I'll carry that with me forever. <laughs> you never got that no. when you were in. No, I got, I got a lot of bagel. Oh really? Yeah, but not that particular method of Peter's, mockery was never invented. I guess my wow. my peers were not that close. <laughs> so you uh, any TV shows you're particularly into? Yeah, well, I, I'm I, apparently I really fit into a demographic of like because uh, we're we're getting the the personal side. Yeah, the personal Peter's, side. Yeah, I I I uh, I love The Sopranos and I loved um, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and that I know puts me in a certain demographic and I realized that and also I was a big fan of the show um, of all things Spartacus 
oh, which was a which was which was a stars series that was basically like the movie 300 lots of sex lots of blood oh. but what all of these shows have in common is for different reasons characters are released from restraint uh-huh. uh they can do and particularly you know in, for, you know in sopranos or criminals in Battlestar Galactica, most people have been killed, uh, and they're kind of in a post-apocalyptic world, albeit on spaceships. Um, in in, Star, in in Spartacus, they live in sort of this Roman world where there are no rules, where, where everything get away with. And it, it's, it, it was sort of compelling to me to see dramas in which people, sort of the opposite of, like, say, an old coward play mm. or a Jane Austen novel, right. which is all about strictures and how people yeah. operate through the strictures. These are people who have no strictures, and what will they do? what's holding them back or what isn't holding them back. Mm. And that seems to be very compelling to me. So, for example, the shows since then that I've gotten really into is The Wire. Oh, my God. Which was stunningly great. Oh, just... And, and yes, you've heard uh, that. You, you saw this coming. I recently got very much into Breaking Bad. Oh, I, I, Cassie and I are right now in a Breaking Bad marathon. Let's, let's tell me where you are and I will tell you where I am so there are no spoilers. We are almost done with season four. Okay, I am in the middle of season three. So, what just happened... Oh, season three. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. So, so, so yeah, so, yeah. so you know, you're about to say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, since uh, I'm behind you, I'm at the point where uh, where Walt has gone to work in uh, the super lab in the basement. With the of the hermanos Poyos, Poyos yeah. hermanos, hermanos yeah. yeah. uh, play Gus Fring, an actor I used to know years ago. Um, and that is such a, a great show for all the reasons that everybody talks about. And what you just said, it's about liberation. Yeah, he's liberated by his cancer first yeah. by his can his yeah. diagnosis, yeah. and then he says, "Okay, fuck it." Uh, yeah. And there's a moment, man. I mean, there, there's so it's many great so moments. So intelligently in that show. done, and it's it's very it's so beautifully written, and 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 it's interesting because Vince Gilligan, I I understand came out of television, but he writes like a playwright. Yeah, like there's a scene that you may or may not remember because you haven't seen it as recently as I have, maybe, which is um, the scene. It's in the second or third episode of the first season, in which basically they failed to kill one of these drug dealers, and he's now locked in, in the basement. In the basement with a bicycle. Bicycle. Thing. Yeah. Oh, I forget the name God. of the character. And there's that long scene in which Walt talks to him, and basically yeah. the guy convinces him not to kill him yeah. by telling stories. And that is a that's a theatrical scene. That's yes. two guys in a room with a really strong action or impetus that needs to be done only through speech. And it's great. And this the intelligence and care of that scene, and then what happens then? It's amazing, but it really is to me. Um, there's that moment in the first episode where he says, "What is chemistry?" chemistry is change mm -hmm. and that theme runs through it like this human being what is this human being yeah, capable right. of what happens when you strip, strip away the rules and each episode seems to be about Walt trying crossing another line and crossing another line and for a dork like me that's terrifying and exciting and and very compelling because every time he crosses a line and comes up against a bigger monster he finds a way to win yeah it's, I know it's, and it's that, so also, it, that also is really exciting to me which is that every problem he's encountered he solves through being smart which is very exciting for those yeah. of us who think of ourselves as being smart like that's yeah. you know he yeah. never punt at least so far as I've seen he's never conquered anybody through superior force right um, but it's also really really hard to write yeah, you know, sure. you know how hard yeah. it is to write uh, to write smart people, 
to imagine how an intelligent person needs to have to be really smart to do You're it. a playwright. I was. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. That, that's what brought you to L.A. back in the day? Sort of, kind of. I moved to L.A. in 1980. But how long does this go on? I'm amazed we're still talking. As long as you're you're interested in having a good no, time. No, I am. I'm just like, wow, I'm just not used to doing to talking this long yeah. um, into a microphone. I came out to L.A. in 1987, right after I got out of college, because I thought I was going to make my uh, career in Hollywood. I had written something with a friend of mine that was successful in college, and we were going to say, oh, we'll do the same thing out in L.A., we'll write a screenplay. And that never happened uh, for various things. He went off to do great things. His name is Jess Braven. He is the Wall Street Journal, excuse me, he's the Supreme <laughs> Court correspondent for the Wall Street That's Journal. That's funny, because another question that came up on Twitter was, ask about, ask Jess, about Jess, Jess Braven. He and, and I are There was well a thing known. from him yeah, saying, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you stories about him, but I won't. Uh, he's my dearest friend, and he does that. And uh, I ended up falling back into theater out here, which is a silly thing to do in Southern California. Yeah. And met a lot of playwrights, including some ones who've gone on to be a quite well known including Tony Kushner who wrote Lincoln the movie that just came out yeah. uh, and decided that's what I wanted to do was to write plays so I started writing plays and I pursued that with some success uh, and, and moved to Minneapolis where I got a writing fellowship moved to New York where my play started getting being done um, started getting phone screenwriting jobs wrote that screenplay that became a Dirty Dancing 2 was thinking about the necessity of coming back out here moving my wife my wife and at that time baby child out here to um get into television which is a way to make a living as a writer uh, assuming I could have and instead I got a call from this radio show yeah and they said so, and you were like subbing for someone well you? what happened was is I was hired to be a panelist right. from the very first edition of Wait Wait Don't Tell Me so if you listen to it 15 ba- years based ago based on what based on based on no based on somebody knew me and, and basically I had a I met with somebody he called me up and said hey you know I know that this friend of mine who's helping put together this new show for NPR they're looking for funny people who are reading who read a lot of newspapers so were your plays comedic no very serious plays. So you're just, serious plays with jokes. Just because you were funny. Just because I was a funny guy in conversation. It's yeah. very similar to Dan Savage's trajectory. Yeah, you know, it's just a guy he knew who knew somebody who's putting together this te- this uh, in his case a newspaper. Yeah, like hey, yeah, you want to do it? You're yeah. pretty funny. You're pretty, yeah. There you go. Yeah, and look what he's known wow. himself. And Fantastic. yeah, so you know, so what happened was is I got a chance to audition on the phone for this new show called Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, and this was actually in '97, and they decided to. I guess cast me, hire me as part of their stable of panelists, and I was a panelist on the first show. And uh, it, the show was terrible, but I enjoyed doing it because the problem with being a playwright or a screenwriter is that you wait for months yeah. for anything to happen, and when it happens, it's usually okay. Well, maybe we'll do it next year. And so there's this real sense of frustration and the length of time of the process. This week, got to do a radio show every week, and if it sucked, which it did, we got to try another one next week. It yeah. was fun. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, wow, I really like this. And God heard my prayer because they decided that the host they had at the time was not working out and they wanted to give me a chance and for a lot of reasons which are too dull to get into now a move to Chicago made sense for my wife and myself and so we moved to Chicago this was 15 years ago and I've been doing it ever since it's a great gig it's a great gig it suits my talents such as they are yeah. and I get to meet interesting people and do interesting things yeah and I have very polite fans and you get to hang out with Paula Pounds I get to hang out with Paula Pounds and not have sex with her <laughs> just to clarify Dan that rumor I didn't <laughs> All right, good. So I guess we can wrap this up. I've kept you here a long time. Uh, Anything you should be plugging to my 600 fans? Uh, Your 600 fans? uh, Well, look for the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me um, Cinecast on May 2nd. We'll be 
broadcasting the show live to theaters around the country, oh, nice. wherever you might live. Nice. Look for Constitution USA with Peter Sagal, uh, Tuesdays in May on PBS. And hopefully about a year and a half from now, look for my book about running, which is the title I'm not certain of. Uh, yeah. Run, yeah. yeah. A lot of the, it's a lot of the run. Run, the, the, run yeah. for your life. That's, yeah. Uh, and that's all been used. Taken, I'm sure. Yeah, right. Born to run, taken, yeah. long run. Yeah. Taken. So what, what's the focus of the book? Is it the about focus the of the book is a memoir. It's a, a little bit of the stuff yeah. that we were talking about. Um, it's going to be based around a year I spent trying to better my my record in the marathon, and just about the experience of being a basically a midlife crisis runner. Oh. So we'll see. Huh. With some expertise and some advice and some memoir and some interviews and right, you know. Listen, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. I know you're busy. You got a lot of people to see in LA. Very honored that you took this time with us. At least it was fun to do. All right, cool. He said, Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.